Mark 1, verses 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Well, as we uh, begin this morning, I want us to begin uh, by doing a bit of a fill-in-the-blank exercise. So uh, I need you guys to, to get your minds in the right place here. Uh, I want you to, to fill in what is missing from this following statement. God loves you and has a blank plan for your life. Wonderful. Yeah, that's what we typically hear, right? It's always how I've always heard it. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And in one sense, that is absolutely indeed true. God does indeed love us. God does indeed have a wonderful plan for our lives. Though, if we're being honest, the word wonderful probably is defined in a way that you and I would not exactly define as wonderful, at least not right away. But would this phrase be more accurate if we said God loves you and has a difficult plan for your life. Many of us could say, well, I don't know if that's true, but it definitely is true for my own personal experience. Jesus does speak a lot about hardship, after all, for his disciples. He speaks a whole lot about denying ourselves. He speaks about picking up our crosses, following him, forsaking everything else. And that may indeed be a part of this wonderful plan God has for our lives, but it also sounds like it's pretty difficult as well. And so this morning, as we continue our journey through the gospel of Mark, we're still in Mark 1, we're looking at the temptation of Jesus as Pam just read to us. Many of us are indeed familiar with this story. We're familiar with the temptation of Christ, but most likely we are familiar with the parallel accounts that are found in Matthew chapter 4 or Luke chapter 4. They're, they're significantly longer. Mark, as we saw, only devotes two verses to this well-known season of Jesus's life. And while we may be familiar and we can learn a whole lot from these long-form versions of this part of Jesus' life, uh, this morning I actually wanted to just spend our time exclusively in the Gospel of Mark, exclusively looking at these two verses, trying to see what Mark is trying to teach us through these verses on Jesus' temptation. And so as we look at this text this morning, I want us to do so really through the lens of hardship, through the lens of experiences in our own lives, times where we have to battle with temptation, the, the battles with temptation that we fight each and every day. And as we do so, I hope that we will see uh, at least four truths about the battles that we face with hardship, with temptation, that will help us to live out lives of faithfulness today. So let's dive into this text uh, that, that we, we just heard and see what we can learn from Mark. But before we do that, let's pray once more. Please join me in prayer. God, it is uh, so good to gather with your people, and as we gather this morning once more, we do so to submit ourselves to your word. And God, we ask that yet again you would speak to us, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, in our lives, that you would be the one stirring us to a greater love, a greater awe for who you are. God, we ask that you would empower us to Christ-like living and service for the glory of God the Father, and to the praise of Jesus Christ. It's in his name and through the Spirit we pray. Amen. 
Well, this text on Jesus' temptation uh, comes immediately after his baptism, uh, a text that we looked at last week. And this text uh, from last week, Jesus' baptism, comes immediately after we are introduced to John the Baptist. One of the words that we see this morning is this word immediately, and it is probably Mark's favorite word. Mark jumps from story to story to story with very little commentary because he is on a mission to explain Jesus' mission. So a couple weeks ago, we looked at John the Baptist. We are introduced to John the Baptist and this man who is sent by God as a forerunner for God himself, a forerunner to prepare the way for God himself. And in that opening section about John the Baptist, Mark makes some astonishing claims about who Jesus is. He quotes the Old Testament to actually say that Jesus is God, that Jesus is God himself, and that Jesus has come to deliver his people. He's come to deliver his people in such a mighty way that even the great events of the Exodus, this moment of, of supreme importance for the people of Israel, even that will pale in comparison to what Jesus is about to do for his people. The crossing of the Red Sea, the, the power of God's uh, uh, presence revealed at Sinai, God's continued uh, provision for the people of Israel in the wilderness, all of that pales in comparison to what God is about to do for us in Jesus. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 8, we see John say, someone is coming after me that that is going to baptize you with the Spirit. And then in verse 9, we're introduced to that someone, that someone who comes to to baptize us with the Spirit. And Jesus's baptism, which we looked at last week, is essentially a coronation. It's a ceremony where he is crowned the king, not just the king of Israel, but the king over the entire earth that this is God's chosen king. And we see this powerful imagery of God ushering in his new kingdom, declaring that Jesus is the king. And then we see the spirit of God come down and rest upon Jesus to empower Jesus and really to to help him or, or to empower him for the work that is set before him in his life. Now, imagine... We've gotten to the end of, of Jesus' baptism. Now imagine you, you don't know what comes next. Jesus has just been declared king by this voice from heaven. The Spirit of God comes in and descends upon him, empowering him to do the work that God has for him. And what would you expect comes next? What would you expect that co- would come right after Jesus is crowned king? Well, maybe many of us would expect that Jesus would go and he'd start casting out demons. He would start healing people. He would start teaching. After all, what a better way to, to what's better? What, can you think of a better way for Jesus to prove the claims of who he is than by casting out demons, than by revealing his power to all, by healing anyone who comes to him, by delivering those who are trapped in bondage? So it's startling When we get to this text, immediately after Jesus' baptism, we find Jesus in the wilderness. We find Jesus all alone. In fact, Mark is explicit that, that he tells us how Jesus actually ends up in the wilderness. It's the same Spirit of God that rested upon him, empowering him. It rests upon him peaceably now drives him into the wilderness in verse 12. The word drive in verse 12 is a powerful word. It's used frequently in the Gospels. 
Uh, it is especially used in Mark for Jesus's casting out of demons. The word cast out is actually the exact same word as drive here. And so the spirit is doing the exact same thing as Jesus does to these demons. It's a forceful, it's a harsh word. It shows us that God has a mission. God has something that he wants to accomplish. And that mission means that Jesus is going to end up in the wilderness where he will face evil incarnate. And so here it is that we see our first truth this morning. As we look at this text, it's concerning hardship. It's this, the spirit is sovereign over the wilderness. The Spirit is sovereign over the wilderness. Jesus doesn't just happen to to accidentally go into the wilderness. He's not just out on a nice little walk and then all of a sudden he walks into a trap. Jesus is not kidnapped by the enemy. Someone doesn't grab Jesus unawares, throw him in the back of the car, drive him out for this confrontation with the enemy. Mark makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is in the wilderness because that is a part of God's plan. God is the one who is in charge even in the wilderness. The Gospels communicate this throughout. In fact, the entire Bible communicates this throughout, that God is in charge time and time again. Jesus's ministry, even his suffering, is a part of God's plan. In John chapter 10, Jesus is predicting his own death, and he tells us that he will actually give up his life when the time has come, that no one is going to take it from him. John says this, for this reason the Father loves me, Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus is referring to the end of his life, and he says, I am the one who is in charge of my own death. Don't let anyone confuse you on that point. And here, Mark is actually saying the very same thing about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. God has a plan for Jesus, and that plan involves Jesus facing hardship and going toe-to-toe with evil. And so the Spirit drives him, casts him into the wilderness. Now, for many of us, we hear about this idea of getting driven into the wilderness, and we say, hey, you know what? Where can I sign up? That sounds pretty great. The idea of the wilderness today is, is idyllic. It's something that we, we long for. The wilderness is a place where God's beauty is on full display. We feel the warmth of the sun. We feel uh, the, the, uh, the beauty of God's creation all around us, the peace and the, uh, the silence of snow that is falling, the, the astonishing colors of fall, the beautiful fragrances of spring. And we think of this place as somewhere that we long to be, where we can connect, where we can fellowship with God. In fact, people today will spend a significant amount of time, they'll spend a significant amount of money trying to get into the wilderness because the wilderness for us today is actually a respite from normal life. But that's not what ancient Israelites thought of when they thought of the wilderness. For them, the wilderness was not a place of beauty. In fact, wilderness was a place of evil. To use a modern-day term, Uh, ancient Israelites actually thought the wilderness was haunted. It was a place where evil lived. It was on the fringes of the planet. God technically still ruled there, but his reign was a lot like the wild, wild west. It was a place where God reigned only in name only. And so Jesus is cast into this wilderness. He's, He's not in a place of peace. He's not in a place of tranquility. Instead, he's going to a place of horror. It was this... So to speak, it was actually like Satan's home turf. 
And the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. And here we see that God's plan sometimes, and in, case, in some cases, oftentimes, involves hardship and involves trial for us. And that's the case for Jesus here. You see, God is doing something extremely powerful when he sends Jesus into the wilderness. Jesus has just been proclaimed God's chosen king. He's the king of the earth. That's what's declared at his baptism. And now God sends him into the wilderness to do battle with the enemy himself. This is, this is powerful because it shows that Jesus' primary enemy is not Rome. It is not the political structures of the day, but it is Satan himself. Jesus goes into the wilderness in order to prove that he is the faithful king, that he is the one who is faithful to God where everyone else has failed. To see this more clearly, consider what is the root of temptation? All of us have been tempted in our lives to do things that we wish uh, that we shouldn't do, that we wish we didn't do. So ask yourself, what is, the, what is at the root of that temptation? I think it's helpful to understand this, uh, to, to gain some insight on this by looking at the first temptation of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be, delivered, or was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So consider this text. How does the serpent tempt Eve? Well, first he casts doubt on God's word. He casts doubt and says, did God really say? He casts doubt on God's word. He casts doubt on God's goodness and says, surely that's not what God's doing. God's, God's actually holding out on you. He says, God's not really worthy of your trust. And I think at its core, that's the root of every single temptation facing us. It is the temptation to abandon a belief that God is good, to abandon belief that God is worthy of our trust. So if you're in the workplace, you're tempted to sacrifice your morals for expediency, or you don't want to stand up or recognize that you are a Christian uh, to your coworkers because you, you just don't want to get ribbed by your coworkers. What is the root of that temptation? Well, if you peel back the layers, you arrive at an unbelief in God's goodness, that God and his goodness isn't ultimately as significant as getting your, uh, getting your goals accomplished, that doing things God's way is not as important as facing the ribbing from your coworkers that God himself isn't actually worthy of trusting in. Or if you're single 
You so desperately want to find someone that you're willing to compromise. What is at the root of that temptation? If you peel back the layers, you arrive at an unbelief in God's goodness, that God's plan for your life, as far as you understand it, can't possibly be good enough for you. Or when you are tempted to lash out at your children in frustration over their disrespect toward you, what is the root of that temptation? Think hard. It's not actually... Uh, This righteous anger that God's plan for you to have your children be obedient to you is being disobeyed. No, it's it's not that. In those moments of frustration, your anger is actually coming from an indignation that you and your kingdom are not as powerful as you once thought. We peel back the layers And we see that this is an unbelief that God is actually the one in charge because you desire that you be the one in charge and that your children submit to you because of who you are. A lack of belief that God is good, even when life is frustrating. You see, Genesis 1 through 3, they paint us a picture of, of really what's wrong with everything in this world. Genesis 1 through 3 describe a perfect creation that is given to Adam And Adam is actually called God's son. He's told to rule over all of creation. And he immediately fails when he's tempted. And we read through the book of Genesis, and and we talked about last week how there's this promise of someone who is going to come and make all things right. And immediately after that, we have the birth of Seth, and we think of Cain and Abel, and, and then, of course, Uh, that doesn't work out well. And then we have Seth, and we're thinking, maybe this is the one. But of course, no. And then Noah, and the answer is no again. And then we come to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of his children, and the answer is no, 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 no. Everyone who might possibly be the chosen one, the one to be faithful over all of God's creation, is clearly a failure. And then we get to Exodus. We get to this time of the Exodus, centuries later, where God calls the nation of Israel his firstborn son in Exodus 4. This nation, as a a corporate entity, is his son. And we think, maybe this is God's plan. Maybe this is God's plan. The one who will finally be faithful. But of course, anyone who has limited knowledge of the Old Testament knows that that, of course, doesn't work out well. David is called God's son. Is David faithful? No. Solomon is called God's son. Is he faithful? No. And all of the kings after them. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that all of human history is filled with people who have failed to be obedient to God. Those who have have been tempted and who have failed. And here, at Jesus's, immediately after Jesus being declared God's son, Jesus is sent out into the wilderness. We have this new king, a king just like David, a king just like Solomon, a king just like Adam. And here, this chosen one, this, this chosen God's son, just like Israel, just like Abraham, just like Noah, he bears the name of God's chosen one, and he's sent out into the wilderness. Everyone else has failed. And the question Mark is asking us is, what about Jesus? Will Jesus fail as well? 
That's the question that Mark has on his mind when he tells us about the temptation of Christ. Everyone who has come and who has been tempted before him has failed. Will Jesus? Will Jesus fail? You see, Mark is unconcerned with the specific temptations of the enemy. If you want to read those, go to Matthew, go to Luke. He's only concerned with answering one question. Everyone else has failed. Well, Jesus, too. And of course, we see from this text that Jesus does not. Jesus does not fail. In fact, he is the only one who prevails where everyone else has failed. The Spirit sends Jesus into the wilderness as a part of God's plan to prove to anyone who would pay attention, anyone who would see, anyone who would hear that Jesus is the faithful one, that Jesus is the obedient one in a way that no one else has been before. But you might be saying, well, well, what does that have to do with me, really? After all, how does, how does that help me in my times of hardship, in my times where I feel like I'm in the wilderness? God knows that many of us have faced unbelievable hardship, unbelievable evil in our lives, and that's our second truth from these verses. It is, it is something that we, we have to recognize that we actually learn obedience in the wilderness. We learn obedience in the wilderness. In our own wilderness, we learn obedience. You see, in the Israelite tradition, the wilderness was not just a place of evil. It was also a place where God would provide for you if you trusted in him. It was a place where God would refine his people, even in the face of evil. You only need to look at the book of Exodus, uh, the book of Leviticus, the Numbers, Deuteronomy, those books. They talk about Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, and they show God provides for his people time and time and time again. God meets his people's needs on a daily basis, even in the face of hardship, even in the face of evil. And he uses the wilderness to prepare them prepare them for how he is going to use them in his plan, to prune them, to refine them, and uses those hard times to shape them. And here we see something that's vitally important for us to grasp as we go into hardship, as we go into difficulty. It is simply this. God oftentimes will send us into hardship not as something that's, that's contrary to his plan, but as something that is actually essential for his plan. It was true for Jesus in his temptation. It is true for us as well. When God doesn't just allow us to face hard times, but sometimes God actually even pushes us. He sends us into hard times. Why does God allow us? Why does God even at times push us into the wilderness, into these hard times? That's the question that's at the heart of the book of Job. Job is this book that that asks this question, why would a good God allow someone like Job, this, this seemingly righteous person, to go through hard times, to go through his own personal wilderness? And we know from the beginning of Job that this isn't just God allowing something to happen, but actually God puts him forward as an example and says, hey, why don't you try Job on for size, that Job actually becomes this chess piece and this great cosmic debate between God and Satan concerning the question, is God actually good? Job chapter one, then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, 
and he will curse you to your face. Satan essentially accuses God of cheating to get worship. He says that the only reason you are receiving worship, the only reason people actually say that you are good is because you bless them too much. And if you take all of those things away, humanity will show exactly what they are. They will say, I want nothing to do with you, God. And so God says, we'll try Job on for size. He says, you know what? Why don't you take Job, take him into the wilderness. And and you know what? My glory is at stake. My goodness is at stake. And so the question of the book of Job is, will will Job still follow God in the wilderness? Will Job still follow God in the hard places? Or is his faith primarily a selfish one? It's only a transaction saying, you know what, God? You've given me quite a bit of good things, and so I'm going to pay you back by worshiping you. C.S. Lewis, he picks this up in the book, uh, The Screwtape Letters. Um, Screwtape Letters is a collection of uh, fictional, I have to stress that, (laughs) fictional letters written from an elder uh, demon to a younger one who is tempting this Christian. And the elder Screwtape actually argues that the most dangerous part of a Christian's life for a demon is not when things are good, but in fact, it's when things are bad. And the troughs is what he calls it, or to use language from, from Mark, the wilderness. It says this, Sooner or later, God withdraws his blessings in his felt presence, if not in fact, at least from their conscious experience. He leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from their will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods, much more than during peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creatures God wants them to be. Hence, the prayers offered in the state of dryness are often those that please him the best. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even when they stumble. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around at a a universe from which every trace of God seems to be vanished and asks, why has he been forsaken and yet still obeys? Many of us have experienced times of hardship, times of dryness in our lives where it seems like God is nowhere to be found times of wilderness in our lives. And just like with Job, God is asking, will you still trust me? Will you still love me? Why does God lead us into the wilderness? Why why does God allow us to to face hard times? Of course, the, the full answer to that is a mystery that only God knows. And yet here we catch a little bit of a glimpse Could it be that God is sending you into the wilderness to teach you, just like he did with the Israelites millennia ago, to to teach you to rely upon him, to to rely upon his spirit that he has given to you, to trust him, to learn obedience? You see, if the root of our temptation is to abandon this trust in God, then the wilderness is being used by God. This time of hardship is being used by God to prune our hearts, to examine our motives, and to ask ourselves, why do I love God? 
Why do I love God? That's the purpose of trials. The purpose of hardship in the wilderness is for us to cultivate a trust and obedience in our lives to God that declares even when life is hard, even when times are, are just painful. As Job says, though he slay me, yet I trust in him. If you find yourself in the wilderness and you find yourself Wondering why, could it be that God is using the wilderness, God is using these hard times to help you learn obedience, to more greatly trust him? Now, that's the second truth. As we mentioned earlier, one of the things that's striking about Mark's account of who Jesus is and and this temptation of Jesus compared to the other gospels is that uh, it's extremely short. It's extremely short, and in fact, I encourage you to open up to Mark chapter 1 later on today, and then open up to Matthew 4 and Luke chapter 4, and you'll notice how different these gospels communicate Jesus' temptation. To remind ourselves of the temptation from Mark 1, let's read it once more. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, as you compare these, you'll, you'll notice there are a couple of key differences. First, uh, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus' temptation takes place over the course of 40 days. It is not something that culminates at the end of 40 days of, of fasting, although that's true. It, Mark reveals to us that the, the, the temptation that we see in Matthew and the temptation that we see in Luke comes after 40 straight days of the enemy tempting Jesus. Day in and day out, he is tempted and he remains faithful. Another thing that we notice is that while the angels are ministering to him in Mark, just like in Matthew and in Luke, there's no mention of the the explicit end of Jesus's temptation. Matthew and Luke say, you know what, there was this, the the temptation culminates with Satan saying three challenges and then he disappears until another opportune time. Mark doesn't say that. Mark says, throughout it all, the angels are with him, the wild beasts are with him, he's being tempted by Satan, and he never makes it clear that the temptation stops. And what Mark is trying to communicate to us is our third truth. All of life is a battle for obedience. All of life is a battle for obedience. Jesus doesn't just confront evil once in his life while he's in the wilderness, We see throughout the gospel of Mark that in the midst of these exorcisms, in the midst of of these healings, in the midst of ministering to everyone who comes to him, Jesus is continually in a battle against the enemy. That's one of the key focuses of the book of Mark, that life is a battle. And Jesus shows himself to be obedient through it all. This is especially clear when we look at a couple other passages from Jesus' life, according to Mark Uh, from uh, the gospel of Mark. Uh, Let's look at three. Mark 8, Mark 8, chapter 27, uh, excuse me, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30, one of the most important sections of the gospel of Mark. It's the high point of the gospel of Mark when Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ. And then immediately after that, we get this. And Jesus began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your, thing, your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Why is it that Jesus used such a harsh language here with Peter? Surely it's because Peter's words here are the exact same words that the enemy said to him over the course of those 40 days in the wilderness. Without a doubt, the greatest temptation facing Jesus in his life is the temptation to forgo the cross, to forget about the cross, to find a way to avoid the cross, the pain of the crucifixion, not only the physical pain, but also the emotional and spiritual pain when the weight of the world rests on his shoulders. And when Peter says, Jesus, don't, don't say that you're going to the cross, that you're going to be killed, Jesus identifies that same voice as the one that he has heard throughout his life as the voice of Satan whispering doubt in God's plan, saying, you don't need to go to the cross. And so Jesus responds with these harsh words because every single day of his life is this temptation to ignore the cross to ignore God's plan, to try to find a different way. Every single day of Jesus' life is a battle for obedience, and yet Jesus proves himself obedient through it all. Another text proves this, Mark chapter 14. Jesus is in the garden. Here again, we see that Jesus is faced with this temptation to avoid the cross. He, he, he desires to find a way to avoid the cross. And this time, he actually brings it before God in his prayers. He's pleading with God for another way so he can remain obedient to God while avoiding the cross. It says this, And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be coming, be going. Behold, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus here in the garden, faces the temptation to ignore God's plan. But instead of running from it, he brings it to God and says, God, I don't want to do this. God, please find a way for me to remain obedient to you and for me to avoid the cross. If there is any way for that to happen, make it known to me, but not my will. Your will be done. This temptation of Jesus crescendos to the cross. At the cross, it's not Peter who tempts Jesus to abandon the road to the cross, as in Mark chapter 8. It's actually the crowds. Mark 15. 
And with Jesus, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Here, men are saying that they will believe Jesus' claims about who he is if he would just come off the cross. And though the crowds may not realize that Jesus surely hears this demonic hiss in their voices, the cross is useless. God has made a mistake. And the only way to prove to these people who you really are, your glory, is to come down from the cross right now. Mark makes it clear to us that Jesus' temptation does not end after 40 days, but it continues throughout his entire life. Every single day of his life is a battle for obedience to his Father, and he proves himself perfectly faithful. Now, maybe as we've worked our way through this text, it's not exactly what you've been thinking it would be. I remember growing up, whenever I heard someone talk about the temptation of Jesus, it was primarily used as an example of how we can overcome temptation. We would use Jesus and Matthew or Luke uh, as an example of how we overcome temptation in our own lives, that if we know our Bibles well enough, if we quote Scripture in the face of hardship, in the face of evil, in the face of temptation, then we will overcome just exactly like Jesus does. And I want to be clear that that could indeed be true. There is absolutely great value in saturating ourselves with Scripture so that we become so familiar with it that it actually becomes second nature to us when we face hardship, when we face temptation to abandon God. But Mark, really all of the Gospels, have something different in mind, something far more important than that in mind, than just giving us an example to follow when we face temptation. In fact, that's our final truth this morning. We overcome temptation through Jesus' obedience. We overcome temptation through Jesus' obedience. We are given far more than principles to follow. We are given victory through the Lamb who was slain. Mark begins his gospel by saying that this is good news And that good news is found in Jesus' temptation. It's not that God is saying to you, hey, here's the key to staying perfect. Here's the key to not falling to temptation. I've given you an example. Now you're up. The gospel is not good advice. It is good news. It is not God saying, here's how to defeat temptation. It's saying, I've already saved you from the enemy. That's the message of these verses. That's really the message of, of, of the temptation. It's not a how-to manual for us to overcome temptation. If that's Mark's purpose, then to be frank, if he only gives us two verses, he does a terrible job. Mark has something else in mind. 
Mark has something more important in mind. He wants us to realize that life is war. He wants you to realize that your life is war, that my life is war, that Jesus's life was a war. As we have seen that Jesus's temptation is not something that is limited to 40 days, but it's something that spills into the rest of his life. Time and time again, Jesus is tempted to forgo the cross even by his own disciples. And yet through it all, Jesus remains steadfast in his commitment to his father's plan. We see that Jesus is perfectly obedient, and Paul tells us that that culminates at the cross. Philippians 2. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what does this text mean for us this morning? Well, first, it means that life is war. Even now, we are in a battle against the serpent. We are in a battle against his legions, the lusts of the heart that all of us experience, which all of us have have different temptations. All of those draw us away from the cross. They draw us away from the victory of Christ. They they find the, the, the root of the temptation is the exact same thing the serpent said in the garden, that there has to be a better way than God's way. There has to be a better way than God's way. All of life is a war, and to ignore that truth is the height of foolishness. That's one thing this text tells us, but far more important than that, this text gives us a glimpse at the key to overcoming temptation. It's to gaze upon Jesus. It's to gaze upon the one who was perfectly obedient to his Father. Jesus has proved himself to be faithful in a way that you never will, that I never will. And if you set out to live a perfect life in order to earn God's approval or in order to pay back God for what he's done for you, if you set out to live a perfect life looking to Jesus merely as an example for you, but not as a savior, then you're going to fall flat on your face. Mark has something different in mind. He tells us to gaze upon the sun to gaze upon the one who did conquer, to gaze upon the one who did overcome. And that's where the battle against temptation and the battle against the enemy begins. We look to Jesus not only as our example, but we look to Jesus as our conquering king, the one who stepped in, the one who saved us from ourselves, the one who saved us from bondage to the enemy, In short, Jesus' temptation reveals to us the cross grants us victory over the enemy once and for all and every day. The cross grants us victory over the enemy once and for all and each and every day. We are granted victory once and for all, not because of your obedience, but because Jesus was perfectly obedient. Where you failed, where I failed, where Adam failed, where Eve failed, where Noah failed, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, David, Solomon, on and on and on. Every single person has failed. Jesus did not. And in your battle against sin, never forget that your victory has already been won at the cross. Jesus grants us victory over the enemy each and every day, but he also grants us victory, or excuse me, once and for all, but also each and every day because the Spirit who rests upon Jesus at his baptism and is with Jesus in the wilderness is the exact same one that Jesus baptizes his followers with. 
Jesus gives his followers the exact same spirit that empowered him for his ministry to remain perfectly faithful to God. The very power of God that rested upon Jesus now rests upon you as co-heirs with Christ. What is the key to overcoming temptation? Well, it's the fact that God dwells within you, that Jesus is with you. And I can think of no greater motivation in your battle against temptation to not fall to temptation than to look upon Jesus, the one who was tempted far beyond whatever you will be tempted, whatever I will be tempted, and yet he remains obedient. While at the exact same time, he took the punishment for my own disobedience. There is no quick fix. There is no five-step plan, no set of principles in this text for overcoming temptation that could compare to this, to look upon Jesus, the one who gives you victory at the cross. The cross grants us victory once and for all and each and every day, not because of what we are able to do, not because of what we try to do, but because the faithful one did it for us. And that's good news. Let's pray and rejoice in this good news of the gospel. Jesus, I am astounded at your faithfulness. When I have failed, you remain faithful. And that obedience led you to the cross. The one place you didn't want to go, you went to, to remain faithful and obedient and to make a way for each of us to enter into your rest. And so God, as we face hardship, as we face trials, as we face tribulation, maybe it's in a season of the wilderness, maybe it's just each and every day. God, I pray that you would help us to look to you. To look to you as an example, yes, but more importantly, to look to you as our victorious Savior. The one who has saved us. The one who delivers us. God, we thank you. We thank you. We could not say it enough. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.